Most of you know that the rapid advances in technology uh, produces a fire hose of information uh, that requires uh, large-scale management of the informatics of biology and the discovery of new knowledge uh, in that information. So at the intersection of uh, clinical life science and information management, uh, there's a tremendous area uh, that remains to be mined and, and progress forward. So today we have two speakers to talk about this issue. Um, the first one, uh, Ivo Nelson, will be um, speaking first. I have my cheat sheet here. Uh, he's the chairman and co-founder of Encore uh, Health Resources. Uh, our second speaker, Elizabeth Johnson, is the vice president uh, for applied clinical informatics at Tenant Healthcare Corporation. Uh, Eric, please tell us who you are. Ah, I'm, <laughs> I'm the announcer. Uh, no, my, my name is Eric Baker. I'm on faculty, and my area is in computer science and genetics, and I um, lecture in bioinformatics and computational biology and algorithm development on campus here. So I have a, a lot of interest in this area as well. So, Ivo? How amazing that uh, we've got... A even one person in the room right now. So so I'm encouraged with the turnout. Uh, let me ask you guys a question. If you just raise your hand, how many of you guys are thinking about pursuing a degree or a, uh, a career in healthcare? The guys with the suits on, see? How about computer science? You'll be the guys with the thongs and the shorts, you know. So. Computer science, computer IT type backgrounds. How many of you want to be in healthcare IT? We'll take your resumes right now. <laughs> All right, so what I'm going to do is kind of paint a broad picture here. Uh, Liz is going to go into more detail with about 250 slides <laughs> that she prepared. No, not really. Uh, but uh, I've been in this healthcare IT industry for most of my business. I'm, my background is really as an entrepreneur. I've started up companies and built them. The last company I had we started in 1992. We became the largest IT consulting firm, healthcare consulting firm in the industry, mostly in the United States. We had offices in London. They work in the Middle East and Asia Pacific. Uh, we, I sold that company at IBM in 2005. I think they're going to go shut those guys up back there. <laughs> Let's put them on the spot. Everybody look at them. Yeah. <laughs> I sold that company to IBM in 2005 and actually ran IBM's global healthcare business for, for three years. That, that job took me all over the world doing healthcare summits and seminars and developing healthcare strategies for a lot of countries, 25 countries in total. So I got a really good fire hose dose of healthcare, not just in the U.S. markets, but also in a lot of the global markets around the world. Now, if you really look at healthcare, for, for this group, I don't mean to offend you, okay, but sometimes you got to take it up a level and say, what is healthcare? Okay, I, I really simplify it and say you put it into two groups. There's providers and there's payers. And everybody kind of surprised services into one of those two groups. Now, I'm biased because my entire career has been on the provider side. Now, if you think about it, how many of you guys have seen Grey's Anatomy? Come on. Is there anybody here who has not seen Grey's Anatomy? You guys need to get a life, okay? Uh, how about House? Anybody seen House? 
Okay, can, can you tell me a TV show that's about payers? No. You see a TV show about banks? Uh, maybe maybe there's been something. Any TV shows about the telecom industry? Any TV shows about, no offense, pharmaceutical industry or device manufacturers? We're in an exciting part of the industry. It really is. I mean, it is fascinating. And from an IT perspective, it is on the verge of an explosion. So those of you who are looking at healthcare as a future, and for those of you who are looking at IT as an area you want to specialize within healthcare, you know, if, if as a career you want to follow the money, which of course anytime you want to develop a career, you're looking at saying do you want to go with an industry that's doing this or an industry that's doing that, okay? You want to go up. This is in large part due to, you know, our friends up in Washington, D.C. and the stimulus money and that they've dumped about, you know, 20-plus billion dollars. Uh, Liz is going to go into a lot of de detail into this, into the automation medical record. Now, healthcare is the only industry, and I challenge anybody to give me another example, it is the only major industry segment whose mainline core process is paper. Okay, Newt Gingrich has this term that he uses when he testifies to the U.S. House of Representatives, and I actually had an opportunity to sit next to him on a U.S. Uh, when I, I testified to the U.S. House of Representatives, and he was one of the guys that was on the panel, and he, he kept saying the same words over and over again. Paper kills. He is a master of coming up with simplifying things down to where people can, can understand them. Okay? So we're in an industry, mainline core process is paper, and there's a, a, a mega trend going on right now as we speak to take that paper and put it onto computers, and there's money to support it by the government. Okay, now that's one. If we add to that the fact that there's other major initiatives going on, for anybody that's, uh, even though you guys may not watch House or you may not watch Grey's Anatomy, I bet you do watch CNN, right? Healthcare reform. We just signed a bill into law that's going to have a dramatic impact on this industry and a huge impact on IT because a lot of the changes that are going to require to take place are going to have IT implications. Change always creates a huge demand for IT. So we've got already out of the stimulus money a huge amount of money that was going into automation of medical records in hospitals and doctor's offices, okay? In addition to that, we now have health care reform, and it doesn't stop there. Okay, it really doesn't stop there. You know, these guys just won't stop. You've got regulatory agencies up there in Washington, D.C. that are changing the way the coding system works. Okay, if you go in and you have some problem and they code, they have a number they put on it, you've got to go have your finger cut off, there's a number for that, okay? They're taking that and they're multiplying the number of codes by 10. 20, yeah, 50, <laughs> huge IT implications to it, okay? And these changes, they're going to be, we're going to see a lot of these things coming down the pike. And not only any time when you see an IT change like this, what happens is you've got process changes, you've got policy procedure changes. It just goes on and on and on. So for those of you who are looking at this as a place, an opportunity for you, you know, to be able to have a career, I'd strongly suggest that, you know, you, 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 you look at IT, not necessarily as a programmer, because that's what we think of when we think about careers 
in healthcare IT. I mean, Liz is in healthcare IT. You wouldn't want her programming anything. She's got a, she's got a nurse, a clinical background, and the companies that I've had, uh, the last company was called HealthLink. I had uh, over 200 nurses working for the company and 20 physicians. You know, probably 20 or 30 pharmacists, because those are the people who understand how to apply the IT and how to re-engineer the processes in order to get the actual results out there. So that said, I, let me introduce Liz. Liz and I have known each other for a very long time. She actually, I actually hired Liz a long time ago and didn't know what I was getting into, but she, uh, she's, a clinic, she's a clinician by background. She's been a chief operating officer of a hospital. She ran a business for me once on privacy, the largest HIPAA practice, consulting practice in the United States that, that she built. She then went on to Tenet and became the head of all of their clinical applications, Tenet obviously being one of the largest multi-hospital organizations in the country. And she's in the process of taking 40 or 50 hospitals and, and going through this process I just described of taking their paper medical records and moving them onto computers. It's a huge, huge task. So with that, I'm going to hand it off to Liz. Well, nothing like trying to follow Ivo. It's always so much fun. Having worked with him for years, it's okay. So when we talk about money, this impact uh, symbol that's up here is our program at Tenet Healthcare, and we are 50 hospitals. But when we talk about how much, it's a $600 million project that we're going to do over the next five years. So when you start to do that math, you can see why we're trying to really put in front of you this is real stuff that's coming your direction. And I'm going to talk a little bit about, about ARA and what is, that, what is that really and how does that play into all this. But I'm in absolute concert with Ivo that this is the industry to be in. So how many of you have been to doctor's offices, to your hospital, whatever, and you have not seen the physician on a computer, but instead you've seen all these paper records. I assume most of you. Now, think about needing some information out of those records. Um, not, about six years ago, I was in a hospital. We had a problem, and um, we had a real problem. The FBI had showed up, and I got a call, and they said, we need to find clinical data, and we need to know in our, at the time we had 108 hospitals, can you please tell me if we have any other problems in any other hospitals in America with our cardiology procedures? And that's what I had. And so I said to them, no, I cannot help you, not immediately, because I don't have the data that you need, but what you can do is drop SWAT teams in every one of those hospitals and go through the medical records. And that's what we did, and $100 million later we had our answer. We can't do that anymore. We've got to do something different. So... Most of you are very familiar with this. Uh, we have a president now who has done a fantastic job of articulating a vision. Just like Kennedy talked about walking on the moon, he has clearly said if we computerize health records, we can save billions of dollars and save lives. Now, a remarkable thing happened. He had this weekly show, and on the 17th of February, remember the day on the previous slide was January 24th, we had a bill. And there's good news and bad news about a bill that comes that fast. It means that everybody didn't read the bill. So we've, since that time, been carefully going through the bill, trying to figure out what they wrote. And one of the privileges that I have, and you'll see this later, is I sit on the HIT Standards Committee in Washington, D.C. I'm one of the 20 people that's interpreting that bill into actual rules and regs and how the heck do you actually translate it into human-readable things where we can actually do something with the bill. But it was a remarkable feat. 
we saw the stimulus package came out $787 billion worth of spend, $35 billion worth of spend in health care to encourage us to put electronic records in our hospitals. And we'll talk about that a little further, but that is a huge amount of money. Everywhere you go today, people want some of that money, and you can be part of helping hospitals get that money and making the right decisions to spend it wisely. So what are we going to get for that? I mean, the Congress never gives away anything, if you haven't noticed that. Just like my CFL never gives me anything without asking for something in return. So they want to know, what are you going to get? You're going to spend all this money. You're going to get electronic records. What are you actually getting for that? Well, what is believed is going to happen is we're going to start reducing unnecessary medical procedures. How can we possibly do that from electronic records? I wish this was a class because I'm going to make you stick up your hands and tell me how. I know these people in the suit probably know the answer. What do you think? So how do you do that? For one thing, you stop repeating tests that were just just happened right down the street. I walk into an ED. I was just in my doctor's office. They drew blood. They did an x-ray, blah, blah, blah. And guess what that happens when I get to the hospital? They don't have it. They don't believe it. And they start over. Delays care is unnecessary procedures, costs money because the government pays for it twice. You should have less errors. How could you get there? If I had the data I needed at the point that I had to make the decision about care, not waiting on it, not looking for it, not wondering about it, I could make a better decision. I've alluded to the fact that I was a nurse. Uh, 25 years ago, I was doing needle-needle transport, which means little tiny babies at the time, lots less technology than we have today. I was putting in chest tubes and putting in uh, intubation tubes and all those things that keep babies going. I was doing it by the seat of my pants. I could see the age of the baby. I could make a guesstimate on the right kind of tube to put in the baby's throat and so on and so forth. Many, many, many successful um, treatments that I was able to provide. However, I didn't have the information I needed right there. That's got to change. Uh, we should get operational efficiencies. We should get the data faster. The medications should go out sooner. And most importantly, you should go home faster. Hospitals are much safer than they were back in the way, way time ago, but they are not a great place to be. Nobody wants to be in a hospital. We want to give you your care, use the right information, get you home. That's the best place to do. We want to get you in your doctor's office, figure out what's going on with you, send you home. So that's what we're really working toward. Clinical information at the point of care is what I live for every day. I've got 50 hospitals. Uh, you're going to see some slides in a few minutes about the kind of penetration we have of information systems in hospitals. My hospitals are representative of that. Eight years ago when I came to work for Tenant, we had 5,000 applications running in our hospitals. They were connected by point to point, meaning only one application talked to one other application. No communication between the hospitals, no two systems the same. So when I'm asked, and I was right, you don't want me writing the code, but you do want me making the decisions about what comes next, wouldn't it be smarter to have the same information at the point every time from the same system? That's what we're looking for. And then finally, how about involving patients in the information that we're using to make decisions? How about providing information that they understand in English? When I started in nursing, and it was a few years ago, so I'll just you know avoid Ivo's look, um, I still had, when the physician walked onto the, the um, unit, guess what I got to do? First of all, I had a white hat, white uniform. 
So picture it. Secondly, I got to pick up the charts and falling down the hall. It was a joyous. I'm a, not a, the kind of person that wants to do that. So, but that was my job. And I was a registered nurse. I was not an aide or I was in charge of the hospital eventually and so on. But that was my job. That's how we got point of information to the patient. Then, could I show you a chart? Does anybody have any idea? Y'all are awfully young. The answer is no. No, I did not share any information with the patient. It was a secret. Today that is changing and that's what we want to change. So we've gone from financial systems being the focus, and we're not going to go through the slide, but to clinical systems being the focus. And that's the industry that you'll be, should be looking toward, and that's what the future holds. So how bad or good is it? These are what we look like in, the, in our offices. So today, for fully functional office systems that have all the information you need, 4% of the offices in America have that kind of system, only 4%. Based on size of physician, it's much worse if you have a small office. So if you're a one to three physician office, 9% of all of America have a system, that's all. Everybody else doesn't have it. So that is a huge need that we have. How about hospitals? 1.5 have comprehensive systems. In the entire United States, 1.5 can actually say they are paperless. If, if we talked about the, having some kind of basic system, a lab system, a radiology system, a pharmacy, those are considered basic, not computerized physician order entry, not clinical documentation, then you get all the way up to 10% in hospitals. So the 5,000 applications I'm talking about across Tenet are basic systems. That's where we are. Now, we do have some good news. Lab and radiology are pretty well across the United States. You see the percentages. We do do drug allergies very well. It's been in place for a very long time. And we do pretty good with medication lists. But that's not enough information to really care for patients. So we've got a long way to go. So this act passed. Remember, we just talked about the American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act. A part of that was called high tech. That's the, the part of the act that actually funds the installation of electronic health records across America. There are four pieces to it. We'll talk about each one of them. There's a national coordination piece of it, a funding piece of it, uh, authorized kind of grants and that sort of thing, and then finally there's a privacy component. So this is David, Dr. D Dr. David Blumenthal. Uh, David is now the head of the Office of the National Coordinator. He is finally in an office that has a job that's permanent. Up until now, we've had two others. They were not permanent. They were completely reliant on the administration. That's changed now. David does have a permanent job. And whether David stays for 10 years or not is not the issue. Whether he stays or goes, there will be somebody coordinating this whole effort. Really important because it doesn't mean we're completely at the whim of every administration to change this and move to a different place. There are two federal advisory committees. I told you I'm on one, standards, the other one's policy. So there's about 40 people that go to Washington on a regular basis, it's my other job, and talk about how are we actually going to make this happen. It's a three-year appointment from um, the Secretary of Health and Human Resources. We have a strategic plan. 
standards and certification criteria. It's necessary. When Ivo was talking about this coding standard, um, there's actually four major codes that need to be put in there. Today we talk about human readable, meaning you know what a complete blood test is most likely. We have to take that, because you all call it different things at different hospitals, translate it into a code so that then it can be translated back into human readable on the other side. There are over 2 million SNOMED codes. Those are the codes that talk about the procedure. There are 90,000 LOINC codes. Those are lab codes. There are over 90,000 pharmacy codes. That's the kind of medications that you use. And there are others, and the line goes on and on. How do you call it an allergy and so on? Our, part of our job is to take all of that and, and determine from a, here's what exists today, what can we map it to, and what can we actually put in the systems. So that's our work that we're working on. There's also a chief privacy officer, and then, um, in a, we're not, we don't have time today, but I put some slides at the back for those who are interested to talk about the national network of how we have an infrastructure where information can be shared across the nation. Pretty interesting stuff, at least I think it is. Ivo does like make fun of me because I get into the details. So, so what does it take to get the money? You have to have a meaningful use of a, a the eligible provider that could be a physician or a hospital has to use the technology in a meaningful way. That means it has to make a difference. It doesn't mean that you just stick the technology in, you write a letter to the national government, they send you a check for you know, $6 million and you're done. You have to show that it was actually used and made a difference in patients' lives. That's a real challenge. Uh, it changes the focus from technology to actually clinically care. There's been an ask, often I get asked, if I buy a system and I install it, so, so this is one that's really a myth about this, can I send the bill to the government and they'll send me a check? The answer is absolutely not. So you may spend $10 million on technology and not get one dime back if you can't show meaningful use. Uh, a meaningful user is one of the, uh, it, for those of you who study this, you know that meaningful use has become a new word in our vocabulary. We talk about meaningful use all the time. You see it everywhere. And we're still trying to define it. Today there are 23 elements that are being, have been defined as being meaningful use. And that's a long story. We won't go into it. But suffice it to say they are trying to get it clear enough that we can actually determine what should be installed. I held a panel hearing in Washington a week ago, had 40 different uh, persons come in from across the industry to tell us, what are you thinking about? What does it look like? What are you worried about? There were three consensuses. The number one consensus is we still don't know what to do. We still don't know what to build and to install so that we can make sure that we're meeting your, your uh, needs. And so we still got more work in front of us. You have to be able to exchange health care. We'll talk about that briefly. And you have to report quality measures. And of course, they are not the same quality measures that we're reporting today. They're new quality, quality measures. So there'll be 35 new things that we need to tell the government about that are related to the kind of care that we're providing. How's it going when you have a heart attack? How's it going when you get readmitted to the hospital? Do we take care of your pneumonia? That kind of thing. So meaningful use, they have come to one decision. You can't do it all at once. So we're going to do it in stages. First stage is just capture the data inside your four, four walls. So make sure that what we've asked you for, you actually can show us in terms of data. So when I get the call, because the FBI is held, I better knock on wood, the FBI is, has shown up, I can actually tell you where the data is. 
Number two, we actually have to take that data and do better decision making. So we have to show that we can take the data and do better decision making. And then, and as some of you that were in earlier sessions, we have to prove we've improved outcomes. We have to prove it. Now, why would we do all that? Well, the reason is because they're going to pay money. At Tenet Hospital, it's $300 million. For Tenet Hospitals, if we're able to achieve this in all of our hospitals, it's $300 million. I told you we're spending six. We get three back if we are able to choose to prove that. Still $300 million we have to spend, but that's a pretty good return. I mean, that's, that really is an incentive. If we don't do this, if we don't make this change, so it's about $6 billion a hospital if you want to do the rough math on it. If we don't make a change, not only do we not get the money, they start penalizing our Medicare reimbursement. So now it's not just you don't get the money for the care, you actually start, for the putting in the technology, you actually start paying penalties. At Tenet, it's about $90 million a year. So it's a lot of money. So you, that's why I want to understand that you'd understand that there is an economic incentive, and that's why we got labeled that direction. But the real incentive is to improve patient care by getting electronic medical records out there. So health information exchange. Remember I told you that we have to exchange information. This is a very simple model. But the idea is, is that first you have data inside your own hospital. Then you can actually take that data and exchange it with other providers. So you can see a pretty simple model. You have health data. You send it through some kind of an exchange mechanism. You, then, then we have other providers that may, through a subscription method, either get that or the subscription may be eliminated by the federal government. But we actually see exchange of data. Does anybody have any idea how much of that takes place today outside of four walls of each hospital? Minimal. Minimal. There are some state exchanges where some data is being exchanged. I'll give you an example. Nebraska, there are some data that's being exchanged between the emergency rooms in Nebraska. So you can get allergies. You can get some information. But this is just getting started. Texas just got a very large grant to do this work, so I believe it will happen in Texas. But it's very, very early in its stages, and yet it's going to be required. What we're doing at Tenet is we are actually going, we have 12 states, so we are going market by market, region by region, and then state by state, and ensuring that if the state doesn't do it, we're going to do it for our hospitals within the state. So it will happen for us, and I think it will happen for other big uh, integrated delivery networks, but what about the rural hospitals? What are they going to do? I mean, there's a lot of challenges left yet. So this is part of what the grant programs are all about. There, and you see the numbers. There are huge dollars being given out now to help get this these sort of initiatives accomplished. We have regional extensions. Another problem that the rural areas have is they don't have broadband. They don't have enough real infrastructure to even give data to one another, even if they could have the data. So they've got to do both. And that's what all this grant money is about. And if you watch the news lines, these grants are being given out almost daily now. So this is really money that's coming along the, along the way. One of the things that you know I want to point out, because we're in an academic situation, is look at the money that's going to higher institutions. It really is recognized that there needs to be more money put into this field so that we can get more degreed people so they can come back out and help us. So this, this is uh, absolutely the time to be in this area. 
And then privacy, um, I was, Cliff is, there's a, we, there, I have a, I have a, new, a, a new acquaintance in the back, uh, who has served all over health care and is really concerned about privacy. Many of you should be. But this is also to cover that. What about breach of, of privacy? What do we do with that? Today, it, it, I, in fact, I recently, this, uh, today, figured out that there were 23,000 more breaches that reported yesterday of where a laptop got stolen, a network got access, another laptop got stolen, and, and they have one more that's a fairly large one that they don't even really know what was breached. But now those private records are out on the network. We've got to do something to stop that. On the other hand, we've got to provide care, so the information's got to get shared. So we need strong decisions and leaders in that area to make sure that really happens. Um, if you, there is a breach of privacy under this new law, here's what they've decided to do. It goes in your local paper front page. By law. Front page, your local paper, you must disclose to the public that there's been a breach of your data. That's a great step in the um, right direction. I can assure you I do not want to have to call my CEO and tell him that we have just published in one of our local papers there's been a breach of data. So it's a great kind of incentive for uh, for us. The last thing I want to talk about on this part is that we are now obligated to give you a copy of your data once this goes into place within 48 hours of you leaving our facility or you leaving your doctor's office. So you can hand me a stick and in 48 hours I have to be able to download the information onto that and give it to you. Here's the challenge. The way electronic records work they're not humanly readable. So if I downloaded what I had today and gave it to you, you'd print it out and go, what is this? It's a bunch of data elements all over this piece of paper. It makes no sense. So very quickly, we've got to be able to translate that into a template as well. So what's coming? We need more clarification around incentive payments. We know they're coming. We know how much they are, but we don't really know how they're going to be paid. We uh, need to really expand our HIE, the health information exchange opportunities. I told you that's not there yet. It's certainly not in the rural areas, and yet we need to do it. Uh, we, we have the adoption of the certification and the standards coming up that we're working diligently on. Privacy security should be out this summer. Even more clarification as to what's going to be required. Academic programs for future. This is the man right here, right? Yeah. This is the man. Future informaticists, we need that. And new jobs, 50,000. It is estimated today there will be 50,000 new jobs in this industry, in this area, within the next five years. Last year, when Google put out their list of what should you go do, and if you're looking for a college career, if you're looking for an industry, number one on the list, clinical informaticist. So uh, I'll tag on to what Ivo said. It's a great industry to be in. I've been in the industry almost third of Washington. It is and certainly not so I can talk about code sets because they're boring as you know what. It is because our, our institution touches over a million patients a year, and I can make a difference. Come join me. Can be, I, I said, I'll take your resumes. I'm serious. Oh, look, he's smiling back there. You have to graduate first, but then I'll take your resume. Um, the, uh, this is really the place to be. We had hoped now that we would uh, open it up for questions. I'll challenge you with this. We're all busy. I am incredibly busy. Think about trying to roll out all this stuff to 50 hospitals. I have not one hospital with computerized physician order entry today, not one. I've got four and a half years to get it done, so I'm busy. So I've got my end in mind, and here it is. I'm ready. 
Let's take some questions. Yeah. Hey, so we have a few minutes for questions. Um, there's some microphones uh, set up that, that help us a little bit. Talk yeah. yeah, talk about it. Yeah, talk about it. By mid-February is when they said they were going to roll out kind of the stage one criteria for me. Yes. The last I heard, they had actually rolled out the final say of that yet. So we got our final, let's see, we got the, I don't know if this is live. It should be. Is it live? No. Okay. How about I just talk loud, too? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the final, we got, we put out the NPRM, then uh, the pros rulemaking went out in December. The final comments were due March 15th. The CMS we, uh, received, I think it was like 15,000 comments, but ONC, which is what the standards come out of, received about 2,000 comments. They expect to have something out somewhere between April 1st and April 15th, summarizing those comments. So we've got... 23 meaningful use criteria, and those are pretty steady. I think there are two questions that need to be answered at least, and maybe I will have more. One is, there's a lot of complaining about the all or nothing. What that means is, how can we possibly get all 23 of these things done? They're, they're very complex things. They're, they take lots of reporting and lots of measuring, and they're not very clear, so that's the first thing. And there's, uh, there's another real worry around eligible providers and who qualifies, because everybody didn't get included. So long-term care did not get included. Home health didn't get included. Labs didn't get, didn't get included. Hospital-based physicians didn't get included. So what they're worried about is you got all these people that need to contribute to the data, but they, they get no incentive. So if I send data out, and the person I'm sending it to has no reason to get ready to receive it. I'm kind of stuck. So that those are, but there are many others. I, you know, I, all the comments are public. If you're interested, they're in the Federal Register. Good question. Any other questions? Well, I had a question about. <clears throat> can I ask a question? Sure. Great. Uh, <laughs> About patient uh, privacy of digitized uh, medical record information vis-a-vis uh, -vis the current HIPAA laws, mm -hmm. uh, for example, is it even possible to remove the clinical diagnosis from the patient's name? So in an area of genetics, for example, right. doesn't your DNA uniquely describe who you are, and how do you separate that information out? Separate it for research, separate it to yeah, give you way, how do you How okay. do you make sure you channel them in the proper... Uh, so there are a couple of things that we do. For research, obviously we de-identify, obviously if DNA is attached to it, someone could discover it. There's, there's no question. But most people don't have the facilities to discover it. So we de-identify identi uh, information for research purposes with very strict criteria. I think, I'll tell you the challenge that we think we're facing. Um, we can't encrypt any number of devices. Thank you. We can't encrypt any number of devices. So here's the problem. You walk out with a stick in your hand. Somebody else puts that stick in. It's not encrypted or has a password on it. Someone else can have your data. So as a clinician, I can tell you, I need your data to be able to care for you because if I don't know you're allergic to something, if I don't know you're a diabetic, you, you get it. I can't help make the best decisions for you. On the other hand, there may be things that you don't want us to know about you that don't impact your care at the moment. So we're really trying to balance that, and it's really hard. Just, just another, if I could add just another perspective on that. Uh, it doesn't matter right now because 
the public, frankly, doesn't want. You know, it, when I was uh, testifying the U.S. House of Representatives, the guy, there was three of us there, the guy on the end, he, he represented the Association of Psychiatrists. And before I went in, you know, to do this, I had all these, you know, lobbyists that I could talk to, and I said, tell, tell me what kind of questions I'm going to get asked. The purpose of this particular testimony is on standards. And the response of the lobbyist was, there are three things they're going to be interested in. One is privacy. Two is privacy. Three is privacy. I'm going, well, wait a minute, man, this is like standards. No, that doesn't matter. Okay, these are politicians. And when you say health care and politics, you know, they want to get reelected and privacy is an issue. So we actually got into the testimony. The technical, you know, some senator was kind of kept eyeballing me to ask a question, got called on and said, Mr. Nelson, is there anything about technology that prevents us from having privacy? No, ma'am, there's, there's nothing, you know, it's not a technical problem. The, psych the guy heading up the psychiatric association on the end piped in, and he goes, Ms. Ms. Representative, do you want your picture on the front page of the New York Times saying that you're on antidepressant drugs? Because that's exactly what's going to happen, you know, if blah, 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 if we go towards electronic medical records. And that's the world that we live in. I mean, it's, it, it's really a political, I mean, even, even if we can figure out how to separate it all out and identify and, and protect people from a technical perspective, the perception of the politics is just huge. So. <laughs> Along the same lines, one of my questions has been the privacy problem. Uh, my understanding of the current legislation is we have uh, a pre-existing condition of exclusions. We're going to very quickly get rid of those for children, but those don't go away for everybody else until about 2014, something like that. Uh, I know of several friends of mine who are withholding information from their medical doctors because they do not want uh, to get a pre-existing condition. They're trying to get pre-existing conditions off of their medical records. Uh, so one concern I think some people would have, and if, if, if they already have a problem divulging information <coughs> to their medical doctor that is not going sort of online in some sense, uh, is the current understanding that there would be privacy from the insurance company? Or, I mean, what, what uh, uh, after you get the, the information into the network, to whom is it supposed to be available? So the, the, the way the current legislation works is the information is supposed to be available to your care provider, not your payer. But this is real life. And that's what I was talking about is that Today, in the new law, you actually can re require that your provider not file a claim on your care, if you, if you so desire, but then you become responsible for the payment. Um, it's, it's really, it's not about what's socially best at that point, and that's the challenge that we have. And Ivo's right, as a clinician, we see life differently. Not that we don't want the same outcome. I need the data because I want to provide the best care. As a, you know, I'm going to put myself in a, as a human being in the world. I understand not wanting whatever that Prozac. I take Prozac. Maybe I should take Prozac. Maybe that's what I said. I should take Prozac uh, to be on the front page of the New York Times. 
And I think there is a balance. And there is a reality, though, that I think that sometimes we need to go back to, and that is um, when I walk into a hospital, uh, it doesn't matter whether I work there or not. I have authority. I know what I'm doing. I know my way around hospitals. I, I appear to know where I'm going. I have never, ever walked into any hospital, whether I work there or not, and picked up a chart and had a single person stop me, ever. And I do it all the time just for the heck of it. Um, <laughs> it's just so, that, that, would, that would fit right out of them. But I do it because, to prove a point, and that is, is that having the data electronically, in some ways, we can far better protect you than we can without on paper, because there's all kinds of things laying around. Fax machines. There's lots of information. You know, doctor's offices have tried to get smarter. You know, we used to sign in and say why well, I was here. You know, my name is Liz Johnson, I'm here to get my Prozac refilled. Well, today, if you notice, they've gotten much, much more careful about what you put in and what you do and that sort of thing, but we're still not over it. The paper is not safe. So the challenge is how can we create safety and can we, there's another concept that's being kicked around and that is the personal health record. So I have a personal health record, I enter everything in that and I only give you access to the data I want you to have. That's a possibility. There's one big problem left though. How do I identify you? The, all of this legislation that we went through, not one bit of it gave us an identifier, nothing. So we all know how well Social Security numbers work or don't. We all know that that's been changed to try and protect us. So we all have, you know, not, we no longer have one number. We have 25 numbers, which we all can't remember, so we can't run a piece of paper. That's real safe, right? Or in our BlackBerry, which is not encrypted. You, you kind of get the thing, but nobody passed it. And if you want to hear I will get going, there's a physician named Dr. Uh, Deborah Peel. If you ever want to talk about privacy, you got to get her on the stage with you. I had that opportunity recently. You can't get a word in edgewise because she doesn't care. She would rather have no information and care blind than to have information to care because she doesn't want it on the front page. Now, I'm gonna, I don't agree with her. I think we do the, need the information. I would rather have you give me some of your information than none, but it is a real problem. It, until we get a master, okay. Uh, until we get a master patient number for every one of us, that's it truly is unique. We're always going to have trouble with a name like Liz. Ivo Nelson, you might be able to have just one or two of them, or maybe one. There's three actually. At three, with Liz Johnson, just think about it. Just think about how many people would have that same name and do. And I mean, I've had my credit mixed up with somebody else's credit. Unfortunately, theirs was not as good as mine. I'm not saying which one, how good that is, but you know, but you get the point. Cliff. I, I want to do, Chris, you and I about, you know, we're concerned about the breach of the privacy. How much of that occurs by actions within people inside us, pick on the provider, as opposed to being hacked in or a lost computer or whatever? Where does the bulk of the, the breach, where does the bulk of the breach occur? And what's in being in place to stop that? Yeah, let me let me give you an example. When I was with IBM, I had a call from a friend of mine who was a CIO at a big academic hospital, okay? And it was like on a Saturday afternoon. You don't get a lot of those calls. He's like, oh, but we got a problem. So what happened? He said, well, you know, we do the, we do our data backups, and we've got this company that takes the tapes, and they put it on this off-site storage for disaster recovery. This guy came by, picked up the tapes, and he decided to stop, you know, at his daughter's softball game and watch softball. And he didn't pick it up in the official truck. He put them in the trunk of his car, 
And then he went home and he was going to take them on Monday when he went first went to work and his car got stolen, you know, uh, over the weekend. Okay, as Liz said, they have to report that, you know. So, and it did show up on the front page of the paper and it showed up in the New York Times. And, and you know, this guy, I can't imagine this, this guy that stole the car, he opens the trunk and he sees these data tapes. He probably has no idea that this is, he, he's not really going after, you know, health records for, for people that are in the hospital. But it's, it's more stuff like that, Cliff, frankly. I've rarely ever seen stories where people are really purposely and maliciously trying to get the data to harm people. It has created a very high level of, uh, of apprehension around outsourcing and offshore. You know, in this particular industry, all other industries, they've moved a lot to India and other, you know, Brazil, Russia, other places, they do a lot of the offshore programming and testing because the data, you know, they don't want to take the data off site. They don't have quite the same level of rigor around the security and privacy. I haven't seen that, Liz. You may have another. It's more accidental, weird things that happen, you know. Well, kind of. I'm going to just, I'm going <laughs> to. Personal identity theft is the number one white collar crime. Uh, that That's a given. And I'll tell you, unfortunately, I'll tell you personal experience, not just from tenant, but from previous. Um, and it's getting worse. We are seeing more theft, and it's inside, not outside the hospital. And I'll tell you what we're doing about it. Uh, we're seeing business office people run off with uh, information. It's financial. It's more financial than it is clinical, actually, because the clinical data is not as useful. We're having more trouble in our business office with people running off with credit card information, financial information to recreate identities. Um, what we've done and what we have continued to do is rerun audits on everything. So if we see we have a, a specific set of names, for example, that are assigned to a particular person in every business office, we actually, because of the, the potential, now run audits. And we look at utilization of the data. We look at how long they spend on a particular account. We look at copying functions. We don't have a choice anymore because, we, unfortunately, we have been hit twice uh, internally. And so this first time you kind of go, oh, this is just random, and this really, this is just somebody was, you know, needed them. I mean, you try to make it, but it wasn't. When it happened the second time, we called the FBI, and we, we changed all of our procedures around it. So I think it's the same problem that we have with VIPs. Um, the employees are the ones who give out information on our VIPs, but you know they look at the most? They look at other employees. That's our biggest problem at hospitals. It's VIPs, sure. I mean, it's really exciting when Brittany's at one of the hospitals or whoever, you know, the, every, they're all interested. If you have any kind of name whatsoever, they're interested in knowing. You could be the local mayor. You could, like, live in Duncanville, and you'd be a really interesting character. Cliff's, Cliff's previous mayor of Duncanville. All right, uh, a couple more questions. Yeah. I don't think so. Just talk loud. Just talk loud. I
Gardner back there. I, I think the, jur the, the jury's out there. Okay, I mean, and keep in mind when, when you talk about uh, data, not just data security, but also data responsiveness. You talk when when a, when, when a physician is in the OR and they're looking in, at a patient and they've got to have information about that patient right then and right there, that data's got to be there. The system can't be down. It just can't be down. So the CIOs in this country that work in these hospitals, you know, they don't, they, you know, they're very, very tuned in to having uptime and, and a backup to the update. If one thing goes down, they've got dual everything. Okay. I'm all for cloud technology. I think it's a great concept, okay? But it's going to take a long time before uh, particularly, I think, these real-time systems where they have the confidence in it that they're really to kind of go live with that in, in their hospitals. It may be used for some other well, less emergent purposes, you know? Yeah. I'm seeing physician network attack heading for that first before the hospitals typically have a little more of a stovepipe. Yeah. Uh, but I'm seeing that from, like, provider side getting where they can take it into the hospital with them. I, and what I've wondered about when they're talking is the security of it, if it's real. You know, it, it, they claim that it's secure, but, you know, I think it's just going to take time. I mean, okay. as much as I hate to we admit it. we see what the, where the breaches come from. I think, you know, we're in healthcare, and I tell you, take, take anything else that happens in any other industry, then multiply it times two or three, and that's when it's going to happen in healthcare. We're, we're just a slow, cumbersome, very cautious, very careful industry, you know. So I think we'll have some innovations. Like, I don't think they'll, it'll mainstream until... It, it, it's really, really proven to work, you know, well. So great. Right. One more question. Yeah, just it's actually a subset of the a couple of the previous questions, and it relates to uh, thefts of laptops, which I don't know how it is here, but it, it's an epidemic on the East Coast uh, with laptops with identifiable information. What what rationale is there for allowing or encouraging employees? to have identifiable uh, information on, on laptop computers? I think the challenge is, is that let's say you're a medical coder, you're a medical records coder, you've got to have the information. You can't do your job without it. I mean, I think it's not so much at, at Tenet, we actually send uh, personal health information across the Internet, but it's all encrypted. Now, the challenge is if it's resting on your laptop and your laptop gets taken, it's there. Right, but given given the easy ability to log into to institutional computers, right. what I, I mean, I, I just don't understand why why this is so. Process so let's on. say you know we use VPN. I understand your I understand what you're saying, but we use VPN, and so today. You know, I'm out in a rural area. I can't get the darn VPN to work. But I'm a coder, and I need to get this work done. And we allow the – I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying we allow because we can't get coders to come into the hospitals anymore. It's become a remote business, and the only way you can fill your positions is to go remote. They want resting data on their laptop. It's password protected. I, you know, don't misunderstand me. I understand you completely. But it's been a business necessity, not a business desire. And so I think we have to keep working it. We're not there yet. And just about all of the laptops on this campus, including the one over there on the 
uh, on the podium are encrypted, and so it slows them down a little bit. But uh, and it's a little bit of an additional hassle to go through to get the thing started. But it's uh, well, I think you know his question. We we have the same thing. I mean, we really do. We've gone through all kinds of mechanisms to try and protect our information, and it still gets. We've had laptops taken. We've had all kinds of things gone. Now, don't you find it interesting though that? That this is a very hey, look. Just look at the conversation today. It's a very big issue in healthcare. We didn't have these discussions when the financial industry was going through through its automation and all of our money, you know, in financial data. All of a sudden, was also on laptops and was also. <laughs> yeah, you know, even then, you know, it just it, it, this this thing about health data. It's just a. It's kind of in a class of its own. Yeah. So. All right, join me in uh, thanking our speakers for a really interesting conversation.